please, to Luke chapter 19. We're in verses 1 through 10. We are going to bounce around a little bit, so if you want to just keep your Bibles open there, we're going to flip back and forth a little bit between um, uh, Luke 18, Luke 19, and then also we'll rely heavily on Romans 8, um, if you want to get those ready in your Bible. So Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It's the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's pretty much as plain of a calling to come to Christ as you can get, and that's really where we're headed. We're going to have basically an old-fashioned altar call. It's really what the the heart of this message is, is a calling to salvation. And I promise we'll get there, but first I want to lay in front of you three ideas. These are fairly big ideas. These are not ideas for for new believers. These are ideas for, for those of us who have been coming to church for a while. But three ideas... And I promise you that they are interwoven into the text today and into our message of of salvation. And I hope to illustrate that to you. So like I say, we'll have our our, our plain altar call uh, with our ideas, and then we will follow that with with these two parables. We have the one in Luke 18, one in Luke 19. There are two parables about salvation, and the idea is to illustrate how salvation works. I like the idea that it op- opens the clock. You remember the old grandfather clocks? My, my folks have one um, that hangs on their wall. But, you know, when you open the inside, and you see all those, those gears meshing together, and you see how the hands turn. Really, that's what these parables do, is they, they open the clock up and let us peek into the inner workings of salvation to help us understand the process, who is doing what, to get the end result of a lost soul being found, a drowning soul rescued a dead soul brought back to life. Let's see, we're going to start with these three ideas. The first idea is that Jesus, every decision that he made was the best decision. I don't think we often think about the Bible in this, this way. That we often think about it as a story, like what happened to us, like our daily lives. Not that this is the sovereign God of the universe who picked this exact day out of all the days in all of time, to be in this exact place. That this was the absolute best decision that could have possibly been made. That any other decision would have been less than for him to be in this exact place at this exact time. It's not just a random counter. It's not just some happenstance. That's what happens when we judge Jesus by human standards. We treat the words, the works, and the miracles of Christ like, like we do when we're you know, going to go have lunch or like when we're headed to school or work because we try and put it in terms that we can understand. 
we try and make it like it's the humdrum everyday routine. I was thinking about the, the old Dunkin' Donuts commercials. Time to make the donuts. You know, or you remember the old sitcoms, you know, whether it's George Jetson or Ralph Cramden or Homer Simpson, you know, clocking in at the factory for the day. We do that with the words of Christ, with the deeds of Christ. We lower them to our level instead of thinking, no, this is the God of the universe, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the great physician. And he ordained before time began this time, this day, to be in this place, to be with these people. That's absolutely incredible. And the point of that is, when we open our Bibles, when you see those red letters, when you see those words, when you see those things, those should jump out at you. They should sparkle. They should have a little bit of magic to them. We should stand in awe, amazed at the works of our God the Father. See, aren't they suddenly worth a little bit more? And don't you want to spend a little bit more time maybe to savor them a little bit more? The second idea is, and I didn't write this. Um, David Platt said it, and John MacArthur has said it this way as well. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And I'll tell you, this is a, it's a big concept put into one phrase, It's a big concept, not just in scripture, but it's a big concept in philosophy. It's a big idea to wrestle with. When we talk about about the story of salvation, it is wrestling with our position as fallen sinners, wrestling with God's position as, as father and creator. Those big ideas, our place in the universe, our purpose in the world, those are big ideas that we wrestle with. And the thing is, we want to be logical. We want to be sensible. We want to be practical. We want to be realistic and honest and consistent with not just with our philosophies, but with our our, our beliefs and our ideas and how we live our lives, which is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing not to want to be a crackpot who has abandoned all reason. And we don't want to be cultists who believe what we believe despite the evidence. We want to be, you know, think about like Spock that dispassionate, that we are governed by logic and reason, that we are able to sleep at night knowing that we are building our lives, our deeds, on a solid rock of truth. And this idea, the idea that God is sovereign, but man is responsible, is foundational to the gospel, to the good news of salvation. It's also, by the way, the largest issue that is raised by most atheists when they want to attack religion in general, and specifically Christianity. And I will say that, and I've said it before, but most people who claim to be atheists are are not really atheists. They still believe in universal morality. They still believe in, in universal truth. What they have a really hard time with is reconciling a loving God, a God who loves us, who cares for us, with a fallen world. They look at the tragedy, they look at the death, the the disease, all of the bad things that go on, and they say, how? How is it possible that there's a loving God, a God who loves me so much, and yet the world is like this? Well, it's driven right here. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. The other thing is that a lot of people want to be God in their own lives, And sometimes the lives of the people around them, they want to be the judge of right and wrong. 
Quite frankly, they are rebellious and blasphemous at heart. They will not or they cannot submit to the will of God. They cannot obey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They put themselves first. I really like that website, I Am Second, and the videos that they do. I've put several of them up here. But that's that statement, I Am Second. I put God first. We're going to go to that chapter in Romans 8. We're in 5 through 8. We're going to go to this several times if you want to put a bookmark in it. It just illustrates this point. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds on what the flesh desires. But those who live according, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. They put themselves second. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. I underlined this. Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's important. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. See, the Christian puts God first and themselves second. Doesn't resolve the argument, though, does it? If God is good, why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there struggle and strife? Why starvation and disease? It's a hard thing to accept this fallen world the way that it is. We did the serenity prayer a couple of weeks ago. It's one of the reasons why I put up there, it is hard to take this world as it is. We see the tragedy and the suffering. We are hurt by it. We are compelled to help our fellow humans, which is a fantastic thing. And we rail against the bad things that are happening. But sometimes we also rail against our Creator. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Do we have free will? It's one of the big questions in philosophy. The Bible says yes. God, in the pleasure of his goodwill, made us capable of sinning, of choosing something other than himself. We have the power of self-determination. We can choose to move closer to God or to be separated from God. I didn't pull it out, but the book of Job is a great resource to study this interplay of God's sovereignty and man's free will. So our first idea was that Jesus makes the best decisions. Our second idea is that, that God is sovereign and that man is responsible. Our third idea is that God's promises are bigger. They're bigger. I was listening to, uh, to Francis Chan, and a lot of this was inspired by, by, by listening to him. See, the thing is that we all get tired. We all are tired. See, after a while of, of living in this world with all of its ups and downs and, and the trials and the tribulations, with all of the noise, after a while we're pretty beat up and worn down. We have the years and we have the miles. In one way, we're a little soft, soft in the heart, because we have been hurt plenty and we don't want to be the cause of hurt for anyone else. We see ourselves and our fellow human beings and 
we can't help but have compassion for them, and that is a wonderful thing. We have been rejected over and over again, and we do not want to be the cause of hurt or rejection for another human being. In another way, we get hardened and cynical. The good can't be that good because we have had our hopes dashed over and over again. What happens is we lower our expectations of what good can possibly come. We lower the lamp a little bit, dim the lights to save the oil because we know it's going to be a long, long night. But that attitude does two things. See, one, we minimize sin. We minimize it in ourselves and we minimize it in others. We compress the whole thing. We squeeze it together. We try and take the bad out of this side and we end up taking the good out of this side, squeezing it together. Because when we minimize sin and the effects of sin, we minimize God's promises. Oh, it doesn't get any more comfortable from here, believe me. So buckle up. We're in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 26. I read this a lot, and I will tell you why. We've been going through the, through the, the synoptic gospels. But one of the things that, if I'm standing up here, that I would be remiss if I did not do, would be to tell you how a Christian should live. What is the Christian life supposed to be like? If I had not ever said that to you, it's been what, two, two and a half years that we've been going through these. We're not in Galatians yet. We're not in Ephesians yet. But if I hadn't pulled these out, we would not have done a treatise on Christian living except for in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why I pulled these out. And this is so foundational to salvation. What do we do once we are saved? What do we do once we believe? How do we act? Here it is in Galatians 5, chapter 19 through 26, and we'll go to Ephesians later. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. See, the thing about sin is it would not be tempting if it was ugly or unpleasant. wouldn't be. We would have no problems with sin if that's what it was. The problem is that it's pretty darn nice. The prison that, that the devil builds for us is very, very comfortable. And we walk in quite, quite on our own, and we stay there on our own, even though the door is wide open and we could leave at any time. And what we end up doing is we end up minimizing, I say minimizing sin. And I'm I'm tailoring this message to our culture, to our time. Not that we're, you know, unique or new, but the things that are pressures and our temptations, they're current to our civilization. 
And a lot of times, we minimize sin with a purpose. And that is, we want to be kind. We want to be kind to our fellow humans. We want to be kind to ourselves. We want to be kind to others. We want everyone who is nearby, who is online, who can brighten our doorstep to be welcomed in this place. And that is very noble. See, in that way, though, when we're trying to be welcoming, we're tempted to be relevant, to change our message, to change how we live, to fit in with the culture. We minimize the sins of our civilization, of our brothers and sisters, in a vain attempt to make our lives, to make the church inviting, to make it welcoming, to make it enticing. And the thing is, it's true. I want everyone who can fog a mirror, who brightens this doorstep, to feel welcome. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. If you were to walk in that door, if you were to see us from the parking lot, I want you to go, man, that's a place where I could go right now and those people would welcome me. That's exactly what I want. Every time. All y'all come. This Jill's in your way. <laughs> but the thing is, that is wrong thinking. And I'll explain why in a moment. See, we also minimize sin because all of us know ourselves. We know that it's true that we have all sinned and that we have all fall short of the glory of God. Right? We, we've read Matthew. We've been through it. Matthew chapter 7. It says, judge as you would be judge. It says, remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the splinter from your neighbors. It says, love your neighbor as you love yourselves. Those are all noble things. We also know that sin does not exclude us from salvation. Isn't that a wonderful news? <laughs> that regardless of who we are, where we come from, and what we have done, that Christ will take us into the kingdom. I, I still, we're going to crash into Easter, but I love the story of Barabbas. I love this man who was a murderer, who was condemned to die. And Jesus took his place on the cross. God didn't even ask for it. Jesus still took his spot. That's amazing grace right there. Even when we don't ask for him, even when we don't cry out for him, even when we, our hearts are hardened against him, even when we have done despicable things, he still loves us and still wants to take away our sin. And that's just astounding. So let's be clear that this is a call for personal holiness, personal godliness, with a purpose. See, because there's some things that are specific to our culture. Greed, the love and the pursuit of wealth. Marriage and divorce and abuse. We have this pantheon of sexual immorality. Lust and pornography and all the things that we do. Drunkenness in all of its forms. All of these things are specifically mentioned in the Bible as things we should not do. Like I said, sin would not be tempting if it was ugly or unpleasant. But it does have consequences. When we give our lives to Christ, we have been called to something higher. And the thing is, as I said, we don't want to crush or subjugate. We don't want to domineer or abuse anyone. Anyone. But there are some biblical concepts that we can miss. One of those concepts is that we, as Christians, we have different roles. 
in our lives. We have different roles that we are called to, especially as men and women, especially as husband and wife. We are called to different roles. Husbands, I tell you this, but he says, you need to act like Jesus. (laughs) I've been reading about the things he did. Let me tell you, I fall short. (laughs) I don't think I could get past page one. (laughs) I was never that nice to my mama. It's a tough call. Ladies, you're called to emulate the church. These are big, high expectations. But the thing is, it has a purpose. Those calls have a purpose. And it's important to put that in your mind to say, you know what? This is different from the culture, but I'm doing this with the idea that I'm doing not only what I'm called to do, but I am showing something to the world. This role is important because this is a concept. See, it's an amazing partnership that the king of the universe would create us and then want to partner with us in furthering his kingdom. It's one of the hardest things that we grasp because the facts are that God doesn't need us. He does not need us to further his kingdom. He can do it all by himself. He chooses to partner with us and he asks us to emulate things, to do things, to further his kingdom. And that's what these roles are about, to be on mission to help further the kingdom. The thing is, some of our roles, they overlap and some of them do not. And these roles are unique to the Christian. It does not apply to anyone who does not believe. And that makes it really hard in our world, especially as we crash further and further into the European model where people aren't even thinking about getting married, let alone living in a Christian marriage. So I look at how Christ lived, how he worked for his father as a carpenter for 15 years before he devoted three years to ministry before his death on the cross. He worked, he prayed, he healed, he taught, he led. He was a leader and he provided. He was in close relationship to the church and he was relentless in his pursuit of the church and jealous in his protection of the church. Just thinking about, and it touches right on this, when he goes and he cleanses the temple, twice he did that. Why? Why would you do that if the temple was not important? Why, if you're the son of God, would you go in and say, you have made the house of my father a den of robbers if holiness in the church was not important, if personal godliness was not important? It is important. So here it is. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I underlined verse 1 here because it says it outright right here, this call to personal holiness. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, it's pride. They have put themselves in the place of God. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Therefore, do not be partners with them. For once you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See, it says, live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. It says, find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, smoking the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for the Father Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we reject these roles, it has consequences. It has the consequence of diminishing the promise of salvation, the joy of salvation, and the promise of heaven, not only to ourselves, but to the people around us. I'm going to illustrate. Any of you guys want to go to heaven that looks just like earth? Anybody? After the last election cycle, does anybody want to go to heaven and go through that again for eternity? Anyone? Anybody signing up for that? Stuck in war? Stuck in famine? Stuck in poverty? Stuck in depravity? Stuck in disease? Who wants to follow a Christ who has no idea where they're going and who is unwilling to lead? Who is angry or yelling all the time? Who wants a Messiah that is drunk or abusive? I told you to buckle up. It wasn't going to be pretty. Who wants a Messiah who likes you just fine, but is constantly lusting after someone else? Who holds you up to an ideal you can never achieve? Who doesn't love you for who you are or as you are, where you are? Who wants a Messiah that keeps a side church? Anybody want a Messiah like that? Who wants to go to a church-led church, one not led by God, a church that leads itself rather than following God? Anyone? Anyone want to sign up for that? See, a lot of us have a hard time. We were just talking about this the other day. We have a hard time understanding the permanence of salvation, the doctrine of once saved, always saved. The plague of divorce has consequences. It's not an excluder from salvation, but do you see how people have a really hard time understanding their relationship with Christ because they've never seen it. They've never seen a relationship that is concrete, that is rock solid, that isn't walking away. In our culture, the door is always open. Christ could leave the church or the church could leave Christ at any time for any reason. Irreconcilable differences, we'll call it. And that's not to mention abuse or drunkenness or infidelity or lust and greed. Who wants to go to a heaven where you could be cast out at any time for any reason or where you could go back anytime you wanted? Who wants a salvation only to be rejected 
or to lose it later because you just couldn't get along. Again, this is a call for personal holiness, personal godliness with a purpose. When we compromise on personal holiness, we diminish the beauty, the promises of God. You see, we lose our concept, our understanding of what is coming. How can we understand what it's like to be loved by God when we are constantly lusting after other people, watching pornography, or simply looking to leave our spouses? How can we have any idea what unfailing love is like, and how can we possibly teach it to our our spouses or our children, or model it for the pagan world, if our hearts are polluted and we're constantly looking away? And why would anyone want to come to a church and worship a God or seek salvation from a God who acts and thinks and sins just like them? Who would want to? I wouldn't. Thank the Lord that heaven is not like earth. Can you imagine? You run into heaven. Oh, glad you're here. I'd love to spend time with you, son, but I have some work. Uh, You know, maybe this weekend. And then he spends all day Saturday at work, and then Sunday he's got yard work, and then he takes you back to mom's house by 6. See you in a couple weeks. Anybody want to go to a heaven like that? Imagine the new temple in all of its radiance and beauty, but no God. No, we're, we're good without God here. We wanted equality and inclusion. We didn't want to discriminate. And God, you know, he was kind of busy, so he really didn't have time. He didn't feel qualified to lead, so we're just going to lead ourselves. See, if we want people to know God, to see God, if we want to know God and to see God, to know the joy of heaven, we have to show it to them and to ourselves what it's like here on earth. There's a Michael Jr., the comedian. You guys ever follow him? He was in War Room, and, and those, he has a podcast. And you remember the guy who was the lead actor in War Room, JT? You guys remember he was a professional football player for a while, and he's, he's turned into an actor. I was listening to him, and they were having a conversation about this, this very topic, about refusing to compromise your holiness, refusing to compromise your godliness in our fallen world. And for him, it's cost him a lot of jobs. It's cost him a lot of, of things. He was, you know, one of those actors that was being represented by one of the top companies in Hollywood. They were giving him roles left and right, but they were asking him to do things that he wasn't willing to do. They were asking him to swear. They were asking him to kiss other women, asking him to do things that he was not willing to compromise on. So bummer for him. He only got the number one movie in the nation with War Room. But see, the thing is, when I talked about him, immediately everybody in here wanted to know more about him. Everybody in here wanted to know more about someone who was uncompromising, who was willing to live their life by God's rules. Every one of you were intrigued. You want to know more about that person. Do you see how personal godliness and being uncompromising in this world, it gets people's attention, and yes, it is hard. I know what I'm asking for. I know, especially now, we've, the devil has almost played his hand how they are canceling people, how an individual could be canceled by Visa and MasterCard. They could just refuse to, to let you do business. Now you violated our terms of service. We can see that now. We can see how these companies can just completely erase a person just by saying, oh, you violated our terms of service. We are no longer going to do business with you. I know it's going to be hard, and it's, it's going to be even harder 
The thing is that it's okay to seek personal holiness and godliness and to be uncompromising in your walk with God. And with that, we will see God's promises magnified instead of minimized. If you were to jump forward to, uh, to verse 11, it's the parable of the, the ten minas. It's, it's a great illustration of exactly what we're talking about. There, God gives one guy, you know, ten, gives another guy five, gives another guy one of, the, of these minas, of the, of the coins. And one of them goes out and, and spreads it all around and, and brings it back tenfold. And then another guy takes it, you know, and he gets you know, about five. Another guy comes back and he said, well, I just, I just buried it in the, in the yard, backyard so I wouldn't lose it. And he said, well, what you had was going to be taken away. See, he compromised. He said, I just, you know, I knew you were a hard man. I, I didn't want to do this. Instead of saying, no, I've been called to this life of godliness and holiness. So that's how I'm going to live. And I know you're hard. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to do it. And the reward was, was worth it. Michael Jr. said, see, there are tests. There are checkpoints. There are places that each and every one of us come to daily, weekly, monthly in our lives. Little tests, little places where we can make a choice. We can choose godliness. We can choose righteousness. Or we can choose to compromise. And to those that choose godliness, that choose righteousness... Then he gives you a little bit more, just like these guys with the ten minas. You get a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And as we move closer there, suddenly you've got ten instead of one, you see? But you've got to pass the checkpoints. All right. So those are our three ideas. Just Jesus' decisions are the best. And the lesson is to learn them. Learn his decisions. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. We need to act like it. We need to act like we are responsible for our actions and that God is the king. And then the last one, God's promises are bigger. So we need to live like it. We need to live our lives like the promise of heaven is what it is. So amazing. More than we can imagine. So I told you that we were going to have a plain altar call, so here it comes. And then, of course, I went all sideways and started talking about those ideas, but forgive me. But the thing is that those ideas are woven into the fabric of the gospel. They are woven into the good news of Christ, and they are woven into our passage for today. The simple and plain gospel, the good news of Christ, as simple as I can get it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Anyone? Oh, well, well, I'll go a little bit more. See, the thing is, we're asking this question, who is God? Who is he? God is the creator, the source. He made all things. I love the the kids talking about Genesis last week. It's always great fun to study the creation and to study the natural world. The thing is, in the beginning, God created all things. For whatever reason, he made us special. We were made in his image. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows everything because he wrote it. He is the author of creation. He is the author of salvation. He spoke and it came into being. God remembers why he walked into the living room. God remembers where his keys are. 
God remembers when the kids get out of school. God remembers the dentist appointment. God knows how to do factors and binomials. He knows how to graph sine and cosine. God knows how to pronounce all of the names and all of the places in the Bible. God is eternal. He has no time. He existed before time. He exists outside of time. Time only exists because God created it as a logical way for us to understand our existence. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. A good way to think about this idea is that to think about an event in history. I picked the Gettysburg Address. God is there right now as Lincoln is speaking. And he is here in Fruta right now while we are at church. He is there. Not not he was there. He is there now. And he is here now. He is where when you were born. He is at your graduation. He is at your wedding. He is watching you take your first steps. And he is listening to your first words. He is there right now. God is good. And if you need further proof of the work of the Holy Spirit and of God's goodness, I was thinking about this. Think about the good that is done by non-believers. You think that comes from the devil? Do you think the devil's sitting around going, yeah, you know, I'm going to let him cure this COVID thing? Or do you think he is kind of frustrated that he unleashed this disease on the world and then that stinking Holy Spirit came in there and got a vaccine within six months? The fact that there is such a thing as a kind unbeliever, as a good work outside of the church, is proof positive the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working hard for the benefit of all people. Make no mistake, Satan has no part in good works. He is the father of lies. Lies are his native tongue. He seeks separation from God and death for all. But God's goodness is in the smile of a stranger at the grocery store, an open door, an open parking space, a kind wave at a stop sign, a hug, an elbow bump, a knowing look with a head nod. I love that when you're with strangers and you just kind of know and you nod at each other and smile and, yeah, we're in the same boat, aren't we? The warm shoulder of a friend next to you. Maybe it's a kissy face emoji on your phone or a meal paid for at the drive-thru. If there is something good and kind and merciful and just, it happens because God spoke. So what happened? Free will is what happened. I told you we were going to get back to these ideas. God is sovereign, man is responsible. In the beginning, and I got this from John Piper, God made mankind in his image and empowered us with free will. It was good, but we had free will. We could choose sin. We could choose separation from God. If you want to, we're going to go back to Romans 8 here in just a moment. Um, It takes a really big, deep dive on this. See, before the fall, we could choose to sin. Put that T-O in capital letters. We could choose to sin. If we go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it draws this out. Because it says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. You have a choice. After the fall... Choice was taken away. We cannot escape sin. We cannot escape separation from God. That is what God meant by 
If you eat of it, you will certainly die. See, Paul, it's kind of a Calvinist way to put this, Paul says we are slaves to sin and death. And this is what he is talking about, our natural state, our natural condition. It used to be on the light side, able to choose the dark. Now our natural state, our natural condition is now to be on the dark side and apart from the works of God, unable to choose the light. Back to Romans 8. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot, not that they will not, they cannot please God. That unchangeable condition, Paul and Calvin say, are slavery. There is no change to this condition without God's intervention, without his work. Unless you are predestined before time began, God is outside of time, called to sonship, you cannot be saved. Without God's work, you are a dead thing. Dead things cannot bring themselves back to life. Dead things can only decay. Paul in the Calvinist argument is, there is no such thing as free will apart from God's calling and the work of salvation in your life. The unsaved have no free will. They are slaves in bondage to sin and death. The Calvinist says the only people who have free will to choose sin are believers. And that sets the stage for the divine problem. Fallen sinners and a loving God. We are here lost, separated from God, and unable to restore ourselves. And we know it. We know it. Every one of our hearts knows it. We've known it from the time we were little. We've known the difference between right and wrong, even when we've chosen the wrong. We feel the stirring of the divine in our souls. Every one of our heart cries out against the cruelty, the suffering, the injustice, the poverty, the grief, the sickness, the injury. Every one of us does. We are all searching for relief from this broken world. Even the most staunch atheist is seeking for relief. We are looking for hope, for something beyond ourselves, because we know internally that we are separated, that we don't belong here. We know it. The divine problem is how to reconcile creator and creation. And God made the best decision. Not just a good decision, not just a decision, the best decision. He sent his son. God sent himself, part of the Trinity. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And he came to earth, why? Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. Jesus was born just like one of us. He lived just like us. He walked like us, talked like us, worked like us, paid taxes like us. He took out the trash. He washed the dishes, did all of the things like us. And at the same time, he was nothing like us. He never sinned. He lived the life we were supposed to be living. He worked, he prayed, he taught, he healed. He led both in his words and his example. And we persecuted him, rejected him. 
Go back to Romans 8. Our native tongue, our nature, is to reject God. So we crucified him. Man is responsible. Thankfully, God is sovereign, and he makes the best decisions. So in our rebellion and in our rejection of God, in the cross, on the hill, at Calvary, all of God's attributes were displayed. God's goodness and mercy and forgiveness were poured out onto the rebellious lost souls of earth. God's wrath and justice were satisfied with the once and for all punishment for rebellion and sin. God's love flowed like a river, like a flood over the world. You need proof? Look at the works of the Holy Spirit. The gulf, the divide, the bridge that we could not ever cross. Sin and death were conquered. And then Jesus returned to heaven with a promise that he will return at the best time, the perfect time to make the earth new again. So the question is, how do I get in on this? How do I get my free will back? How do I move from darkness to light? What must I do to be saved? By faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. That's from Dr. Jew Saint. By faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. By faith, there is no work that will save you. Simply believe. In Christ, there is one God and one Messiah. There is no salvation apart from Christ. And it is by God's mercy and grace we are saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 41. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Are you cut to the heart? If so, then repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It says, repent, change the course of your life. So we talk about Jesus' decisions, they're the best decisions. Change the course of your life. Learn them. Imitate them. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Act like he is the sovereign Lord of your life and like you are responsible for living as a godly and holy life as you possibly can. God's promises are bigger. Live every day like it is bring Jesus to work day. Do not minimize the consequence or the effects of sin. If you wouldn't do it if Jesus was standing there next to you, don't do it. If you wouldn't look that way, dress that way, act that way, if you knew that Jesus was going to come to work with you today, don't do it. Instead, magnify the promises of God. It says, be baptized. By the washing of the water in the public places, you proclaim Jesus as Lord of your life. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13. Nathan and I were going over this earlier this week. If you declare with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on him? If you've never called on him before, will you call on him today? If you're a believer, be renewed. Call on him anew. Declare anew your faith. Do you recognize yourself as a dead, lost sinner in need of a savior? Do you confess your sins before God? Your lust, your greed, your envy, your pride. Lay your sins before God and ask for his forgiveness. He is loving and kind and faithful. He sees you and he hears you and he will answer. Do you take Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that he is the Holy Son of God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered, that he was crucified, that he died and was buried, that he descended into hell, that he rose again the third day, that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Do you believe that? So we're going to go to Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. And if you're willing, say this with me. Pray this prayer. Lay your hearts on Christ, even if it's for the umpteenth millionth time. Maybe it's for the first time. Have mercy on me, O God. Come on, say this with me. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen. So our two parables... Jesus is entering Jericho. It's the last time. And we are crashing headlong into Lent and Easter. So this scripture is is fairly timely. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. It's the last things. This is the last time he will pass by this way. It's kind of bittersweet. These people, though, are blessed to have him pass through. And Jesus is doing what he does. Healing and teaching, providing, praying, Zacchaeus, he's the lowest of the low. He was lower than that. He was despised. I was thinking, think of like a Raiders fan, like actually from California. (laughs) But the lowest of the low of society. He was a Jewish tax collector, and not just a tax collector, but a head tax collector. He was a traitor to his own people, a Roman sympathizer, He was profiting from the oppression of God's people. But something stirred in him. 
Zacchaeus goes to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't. He's short, so he climbs a tree. And notice, it takes both. This is important. It takes both. I said, we're opening the, the doors of the clock. Jesus is coming, seeking and saving the lost, and Zacchaeus is going, seeking Jesus. It takes both. Like saving a drowning man, feeding a starving man, clothing a, a cold man, Jesus saw Zacchaeus' need and was compelled to bless him. Jesus says in verse 5 that he must stay at Zacchaeus' house. He must but also takes Zacchaeus recognizing his need for a savior and relentlessly, he climbed a tree. He was relentlessly seeking Jesus. A lot of us wouldn't cross the street to hear the gospel. Well, we might go the other way, you know, right? Because we don't want to be around that crazy guy in the soapbox in the park. But how many of us would climb a tree just to catch a glimpse of Christ? Just to hear one of those precious red words. So don't look lightly on Zacchaeus. He is exceptional and he deserves his place in history. Jesus and Zacchaeus are seeking each other. If we were to flip back to verse 18, it's the same thing, the blind man. Jesus comes, he cries out. It takes both. Do not let your voice be silent when Jesus comes near. Climb a tree, cry out. Just do whatever you have to do. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ says, I am coming to your house. He says that to you. I am coming to your house. I must. Oh, what a blessed moment that the Son of God would look on any of us, let alone all of us, and say, I must come stay with you. Christ knocks on the door of each of us. The question is, will you let him in? Is he welcome in your house? See, God's promises are bigger, but we need to live like it. And Zacchaeus demonstrates his repentance, his change of heart. He calls Jesus Lord in public. He declares Christ as Lord, as Messiah. Then he lives like God's promises are bigger. He makes reparations for the people he has harmed. He pays them back four times. He gives up his materialism. Notice it doesn't say he quit being a tax collector. He just quit being a corrupt one. He started acting like it was bring Jesus to work day. See, God's promises are bigger and they're better than anything we can imagine. But he calls on his followers to act like it, to act like him. Because when others see us, And we are struggling against the culture, against the grain, struggling to stand on his word and promises. They get a glimpse, a small glimpse of the kingdom. Now, we are all still fallen sinners, and we aren't going to make it every day. But that doesn't mean that we just give up and do what we want. We get on to verses 6 and 7. I call it the start of a beautiful friendship. Zacchaeus climbs down and greets Jesus, and Jesus goes to stay with Zacchaeus. Underline verse 7. It's one of the best verses in the Bible. Jesus has gone to stay with sinners. Thank God. Thank God. How awesome is that? Is there anything better that we as lost and broken sinners could hear? Oh yeah, Jesus has come to stay with you. (laughs) Thank goodness. 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He wants to say it at our house, at my house. The great physician, the Messiah. That's better than the Backstreet Boys coming to your place. The reward for Zacchaeus' changed heart, for the confession of his mouth, for the change in his life, are the words we all want to hear when we end this life. When we leave here, when this body wears out like a garment, I want everyone, not just in this room, but everyone to hear the words. Because Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Flip back one to 1842. These beautiful words. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Go forward to 1917. Well done, my good servant. That we could hear those words from our master when we come home. Can we close by um, saying the Apostles' Creed? You guys up for that? I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people that you have blessed us with. Father, thank you for your word. Father, please help us as we go out into this week to to live as how you would want us to live, to act how you would have us act, to be uncompromising in the places where you would be uncompromising and to be loving in the places where you would be loving. And please give us the wisdom, Father, to know the difference. Father, we still have surgeries and people recovering from surgeries and cancer and waiting for diagnosis and family in the hospital and family that has passed away. Father, we mourn and wail, we weep, we cry out to you for healing. We ask that you hear us, Father, as we know you do. And if it is your will, Father, to to heal, please heal. Father, we ask that you be with our children, that as they go out into this week, that you bless them, that you guide them, that you love on them as you do. Please, Lord, just keep them safe. Father, we seek your blessing on our town, on our nation, on our leaders, on the world. That your kingdom, please come, Father, please. Father, we are just going to lift up our lives to you and we ask that your wisdom and your grace and your mercy be poured out on us that we could show the world and tell the world who you are and how you have helped each and every one of us. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.